loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Ivan Maisel. Ivan's the vice president and editorial and senior writer of On3.com. He's covered college football for nearly four decades, from 2002 to 2021, as a senior writer for ESPN. Prior to joining ESPN.com, Maisel covered national college football for Sports Illustrated, Newsday, and the Dallas Morning News. He's been honored eight times for Best Story by the Football Writers Association of America and twice by the Associated Press Sports Degree in American Studies at Sports, sorry, Editors, which in 2019 named him one of the 10 best sports columnists. Maisel earned a bachelor's degree in American studies for Stanford University, and today we'll be talking generally uh, or mostly about his memoir, I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye, a memoir of loss, grief, and love. Welcome, Ivan. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm delighted to be here. Delighted to have you. And um you know, I was I was uh, just letting you know before the interview how much I resonated with a lot of the messages with the book, and so I'm I'm very very happy to have you to have this conversation. But what I want to start with is how uh, how you came to write it, what your experience is, and and just to say, as a starter, I feel as if I know your son. Uh, I really, I really appreciate how you brought him to life in your book. Um, It's, it's in the specific that we, that we feel the universal. So thank you for that. Could you, could you share with the listeners um, this dramatic and huge thing that happened in the life of your family? Yes. uh, In February of 2015, Max, our middle child, was a junior at RIT in Rochester, New York, and he uh, he ended his life. Yeah, he was spiraling, and we weren't aware of the depth of his uh, problems. And well, I just out of the blue on a Monday night got a phone call from a sheriff in Monroe County, where Rochester is, saying that they had found our car parked at a park on the shore of Lake Ontario. That park is a mile east of my brother-in-law's summer home where we had gone for a family reunion almost every year of Max's life. So I knew exactly where the sheriff was describing. I knew how comfortable Max was there I knew it was a terrible winter and the weather there was not hospitable. And it all led to only one conclusion, you know, that he, uh, the the car had been there, the the 
sheriff told me for 24 hours, there was no sign of Max. And we came to learn somebody had seen him leave the car and never saw him come back. So uh, we assumed the worst. And uh, eight weeks later, his uh, body surfaced as the water in Lake Ontario warmed about a quarter mile off of that pier. So uh, now what happened in between those two things? You know, we're, he definitely died of drowning. Uh, but once he walked onto that pier, don't know what it, you know, don't know what happened. Right. Clearly he, you know, he clearly he had uh, suicidal ideation when he walked onto the pier, you know, so that's what we know. And also at that age, I've, I've, I don't know, you probably even know more about this than me, but there can be an impulsiveness as well. Uh, you know, at, at, the, at any age, I guess, but how long was he really thinking about it and all that? You'll never really know, but that must have been beyond a shock, obviously, um, because you didn't, he didn't share it. Do you, do you think, no. I know with mental health, there's often in that kind of non-sharing a lot of shame. Do you feel that was a part of it for him? Well, Max was a very shy, reticent soul. So he felt shame about most things. And you know, he did not like people. He, uh, he, he was somewhere, and it was never made clear to us where, because they don't know how to make it clear, but he was somewhere on the, on the uh, spectrum of learning disorders. He, you know, all we were ever told is that it was not autism. It was not what was then described as Asperger's. Uh, and it, it, what it amounted to in real terms, Cheryl, was just that he struggled with face-to-face -face contact with people. And uh, so he just sort of withdrew. Uh, he found a love of photography. He did not like to take pictures of people. He did not like having his photograph taken. Uh, so at every, at every juncture of where he interacted with people, he was just very careful uh, in a self-protective way. Uh, and all of which is leading to, he, you, to your question, uh, he told us, even us, who he trusted and knew loved him, he told us very little, us being uh, my wife and our two daughters. And, uh, I mean, we knew he was struggling, but we also misread. He Over that previous Christmas break, several weeks before he died, he was sort of pulling away from us, which we interpreted as a measure of independence and maturity in adulthood. And in retrospect, it was clearly at some level he was beginning to to leave us of course though that that's in retrospect as you yes. said, has i've i've um, sent three children to college uh and they do kind of need to 
step away, right? In the most yes. normal of transitions. Uh, and so I think as a parent, I would have read that as uh, good news until you knew it was bad news that he was kind of um, stepping into his own life at college. <laughs> you know, well, that's I what could we imagine. Was. Yeah. 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 And, and yeah, we, we came to learn uh, by being able to get into his laptop after he died that, you know, even as he, he was aware enough of his struggle that he reached out to the mental health professionals on campus and he did not give them any sign that he, uh, you know, that he had any suicidal ideation. He, he was talking about, he, he told them he was thinking about it, but he was also talking about his classwork in the future. And, and from what I have come to learn, you know, that's a sign that if you see a future, then you're not thinking you're going to end your life. But as he was talking to them about that, he was, he also was telling some other people that, you know, if the weather hadn't have been so bad up there that winter, he probably would have already attempted to end his life. And uh, he waited in part because there was so much snow, he, he couldn't dig his car out. So, you know, it's, uh, he clearly was, I don't know that it was impulsive. Uh, it sounds as if he knew that he was going in that direction, but others yes, did not. Exactly. Mm -hmm. The people he told didn't know how to help him, and the people who could have helped him uh, didn't either through him being quiet or they just misread it. You know, and that's, you know, that's just what happened. Right. You know, I, I'm going to start this by by uh, sharing a quote I heard from one of my teachers, which is, when someone commits suicide, they hang their skeleton in your closet, which um, I have heard that described in various ways by lots of people who whose family members have taken their lives. And yet, I, I've got to say that you and your family um, seem to not engage in that you know, uh, a lower level of self-blame than I've heard in other conversations, um, kind of accepting earlier or, or uh, I don't know what to say, not easier, of course, it's not easy, but um, that you were able to say, we just didn't know. Is, is that accurate? That's well, it. it's accurate as far as I am concerned. Uh, my my wife feels, uh, you know, she's looked at it a little differently as as a mother who was very close to Max. You know, she, uh, of course, I say of course. You know, she has experienced some of that guilt and blame. Uh, mm -hmm. Has put that on herself. I did not do that, Cheryl, and it was really. Uh, and it, it, I, I will freely admit it may this the story I'm going to tell you may have been my own little get out of jail free card that I gave myself. But the week that Max disappeared, I got a phone call from a woman that I had grown up with, uh, whose name is Robin Gerwich. She's a uh, 
psychologist at Duke University. And uh, she specializes in, in dealing with trauma, particularly with children. Uh, and, and, you know, Robin and I grew up together. Our, parents, our mothers were best friends. Uh, and I had not talked to her in years. And she called me that week and she just talked to me about suicide and death and said, uh, first of all, that uh, you will never understand why Max did this because you think rationally. And, it, and suicide is not an act taken up by a rational mind. So, you know, don't try to, you can try to understand it if you want, if you want, but you'll never really understand it. So I went, okay, I'm good with that. Uh, she also said uh, that unless uh, someone says to you that I, at this hour, on this day, at this place, I'm going to attempt to end my life, that there's nothing you can, you know, you, there's nothing you can do to stop them. And I found that very comforting. Uh, and, and just, she stressed to me that it is an illness. And I think uh, part of what we struggle with in American society is the phrases mental health and mental illness, certainly in, of my generation anyway, we focus on the first word instead of the second. You know, oh, think, totally agree there, of course. Know, we think mental, and it's, the fact is, it is an illness. And in terms of, uh, you know, I draw the comparison to cancer. I think for our parents' generation, you know, people didn't talk about cancer. And if they talked about it, it was in whispers. And sometimes they didn't even tell the person who had the illness that that's what they had. Yes. And, and once we brought cancer out into the open over the course of my lifetime, uh, the strides that have been made have been tremendous. And we're just now opening the door to that with mental health and mental illness. And, and it, as we are more open, uh certainly there are more struggles uh but uh it may be that we're more open because we feel the we have the license to be more open now and and uh i just kept thinking mental illness needs sunlight and you know i didn't want to anyone to your point i didn't want anyone to interpret my silence as shame uh i would that i was ashamed of max because i wasn't and i'm not so i just put it all out there and and i continue to speak about it and if somebody uh interprets shame out of that story that's not something i feel i have to deal with that's that's on them and if nothing else cheryl it's enormously liberating uh, to not have to worry about, oh, we're only, we're only telling our close friends what really happened, or we're only telling this level of our family what happened. You know, if you just put the story out there, then you don't have to worry about it anymore. Right. You know, so, I heard a quote once, I always tell the truth because I, 
I won't be able to remember who I lied to. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I kept thinking, uh, okay, and especially in those early days when your mind is skittering and you can't stop on any one thought for more than a second. I thought, okay, now I've got to keep track of who we're telling and who we're not telling. You know, I, I, I just had no interest in doing that. I, I think, you know, there's, you did that uh, at the time out of your, your uh, love for Max and your interest in not adding to your own pile, <laughs> I guess. Yes. But, but in the end, that helps other people as well. And I'm thinking about um, the way in which the sports world, which is your world, uh, there's been so much in the last several years about health, mental, <laughs> yes. you know, and um, it's it's changing the conversation generally. And I think maybe particularly because um, there's a kind of assumption of, of toughness in that yes. world. Yes. And so to break that down and say, yeah, we're, we're tough on the field or we're tough, you know, but that doesn't mean human beings are tough in, in the way that we've thought about it. I just think that's so important uh, as, a, as a message. And it takes some courage to put it out in a book, certainly. But you took some time before you did that. Well, you know, people have said to me, and I've talked about this in the book, that, you know, what I've done is courageous. And I don't really subscribe to that train of thought. I mean, for one, you know, I am equipped to write about what's going on. You know, that's, that's how I deal with things. I write about them. Uh, and uh, two, uh, as I said, I had an ulterior motive to, uh, to, to being open about it because I just didn't want to have to worry about it. But, I, you know, your point, I cover primarily college athletics. And it's been within really the last two or three years, probably since the onset of the pandemic, as I think about it, that we've begun to see universities ramp up their services to help their student athletes. You know, I'm, I'm talking to you today, I'm at Notre Dame and I spoke to some student athletes and, and campus counselors last night here. And uh, they've hired, three sports psychologists just for their athletes. And this is on a campus, you know, where they have not only a, you know, mental health office and counseling office, but they have hot and cold running priests everywhere you look, you know, who are by nature counselors. Yeah. So th there is a need and Definitely. Uh, they are fighting that uh, old saw about toughness and, and what, I have heard coaches and counselors say is, and, and I think Kevin Love of the Cavaliers actually said this in the NBA, is that toughness is asking for help, is admitting that you need help. That's what makes you tough, uh, which that 
really resonated with me. Resonates. Let's go to a break and come back and talk about this courage issue a little bit more, um, because I think that's a very important thing um, to highlight. So let's come back and talk about this. And listeners, you can you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Ivan Maisel, go to Ivan Maisel. It's I-V-A-N-M-A-I-S-E-L.com. Be back soon. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, Working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Resiliency is the human capacity to lean into individual and collective strengths with compassion and grit when faced with the challenges of lived experience. Join host Elaine miller Karras for Resiliency Within, a program of hope and healing designed to inspire you to integrate wellness into your life, your family, and your community. In challenging times, you'll want to tune in every week. Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Ivan Maisel about his book, I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye. And before the break, Ivan, we were we were touching on the subject of courage and how people, when you when you do something public like you and I both do, uh, that comes out of our grief, uh, it's seen as courageous. When actually, uh, I, I guess you could read it that way, but but for me anyway, it just would be so crushing not to do anything with that experience to. Uh, you know, this is sort of a way I keep my wife alive, um, you know, yes. and uh, my first wife and um, stay connected to what we 
what came out of that loss. So is that is that also how you look at it? Or does it sometimes take some courage or something like courage? Uh, how do you put that all together? Well, I would make two points, Cheryl. One is, uh, to me, the courage is not in talking about it. The courage is in is in learning to live with it. Mm. And, you know, that's what was hard. You know, it was really hard. And uh, talking about it and writing about it is what I do. And it's what I know how to do. And it's what I know how to do to cope with what's going on. So, you know, I, and I, I didn't want to write a book that just was about Max because I thought, you know, it, it, as much as I want people to know who he was, what's the compelling reason for them to know who he was? There really isn't one, you know. And uh, so I, as I thought about the idea of writing a book, I kept thinking, what can I say to the reader that will uh, resonate and be worth their time. And this, the notion of demystifying grief and learning to live with grief and to not be scared of grief, uh, was, was what I, I lit on. Um, so that, uh, you know, in, in terms of, of courage, uh, just dealing with that and learning how to live with it. I think was the hard part. Yes. And then on the other hand, uh, what's the other option? I mean, well, people do sometimes take other options like um, dying themselves or, you know, drugs and alcohol or whatever it is. But, yeah. um, but that's actually not very common. People do generally go towards how do I live with this? Yes. And, and, uh, the, you know, the, I had the thought early on and what happened was two weeks after Max's body surfaced, which was this week, seven years ago, that was the, it was mid April, uh, two weeks later, my nephew, our nephew got married and we had a decision to make. And I thought, you know, are we going to go to the wedding or not? And, you know, nobody did the four of us want to go to the wedding. Of course not. But it just occurred to me, A, the wedding is staring you in the face, telling you there will still be joy in your life if you open yourself up to it. Uh, but just because this one really bad thing happened to you doesn't mean that everything that is going to happen to you from here on out is going to be uh, a disaster. So... Uh, so that was a vote for your future life. <laughs> yes, and it, 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 exactly. And you know, were, did we want to be at the wedding? No. And it, was it fake it till you make it? Of course. But it just it made me understand in a very immediate and visceral way that I could not stay where Max was. You know that uh, my life was continuing, and if I didn't open myself up to what was happening, then I would lose again, you know, then I, you know, so I'm going to deny myself that wedding, uh, you know, to, uh, to what end because I'm uncomfortable or I'm sad. Uh, well, you know, those aren't bad reasons, but it just, 
you can be uncomfortable and sad and be at the wedding, you know, so that's Indeed. Indeed. what we did. Well, I think the other thing that highlights, Ivan, tell me if you agree, is that uh, if you've ever been really depressed, that's sort of a pall on everything. But I don't find grief, early grief, maybe everything's terrible. But even then, uh, there are moments where you're laughing at a memory or, you know, it's not a um, crashing blow to the range of emotions the way that you know, mental illnesses, for instance. Um, And so I can even imagine that there were a couple of moments that moved you or touched you at the wedding, that it wasn't, it wasn't a hundred percent excruciating. No, I mean, we, you know, we ate and we drank and we danced a little, uh, (laughs) but it was more the, the memories I have of that weekend are really, uh, it was in my hometown of Mobile, Alabama, and seeing some of my extended family that I had not seen since Max died. And uh, to hear and feel their concern and their love was, you know, I, I, in that sense, I was really glad I went. And, uh, you know, it, and I make this all sound so easy and matter of fact, and it, and it, and it wasn't and, and time worked its magic as time inevitably does. Uh, but the, you know, the, looking back at it, you know, this is, this is what happened. It just unfolded over a period of weeks and months. There's something that I, that's a little to the side of what we're talking about right now that I was really curious to talk with you about because of course, this was your story, not your wife's story, not your daughter's yes. story. Uh, that was very clear to me. And then I was aware as a subtext how uh, how differently um, men and women are socialized to deal with uh, emotional blows. Yes. Um, and you might be... Um, you know, in a in a new wave of of men who are willing to have their feelings, I guess. <laughs> but it did seem there was there was somewhat of a gender difference. Uh, what the little bit you said about your wife, for instance, um, you said you know she was a mother; she should have done something, right? And um, and also that that sense of. Um, maybe making uh, making less out of the dumb things people say, but I wondered what you think whether there was any gender um, impact in your in the different ways that you and your wife and daughters grieved. Oh, sure. I think their emotions are more are closer to the surface, and I think mine, uh, you know, have been packed down beneath, you know, I'm 62 years old, but, you know, beneath decades of social conditioning that I'm not supposed to bring them up. And it's only through, uh, you know, therapy as an adult, you know, even starting well before Max died that I've, you know, been able to understand, no, you, you can't, you, you shouldn't bury this stuff. Uh, now I would just caution in terms of Meg's 
feelings of of uh, of uh, regret and guilt over Max, you know, that's what she thought about herself. That's not what the three of us thought about her role. I mean, she was his right. absolutely. She was his great defender and 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 protector. Uh, but you know, we didn't. One of the reasons and. There's a term for this, and I can't remember exactly what it is. It's like post-traumatic growth and, and post-traumatic right. You've intimacy. You've got it. Yeah. Post-traumatic growth. Yep. Yes. Well, <laughs> I, you know, we are as a unit stronger, not that we weren't strong before Max died, but we are stronger now because, uh, because of this. And, you know, what uh, I tell the story in the book that, you know, when our oldest daughter, Sarah, got off the plane in Rochester, she walked about 10 feet and, and she reads everything. And she said, uh, so I've read that parents who lose a child, half of them get a divorce. Are you guys getting divorced? Right. <laughs> you know, and I was like. She uh, caught you up short right away, huh? <laughs> I wanted to, you know, I wanted to look at her and say, fine, and you, you know, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's a legitimate you know, just, concern, though. You know, what else yeah. am I going to lose, right? <laughs> yeah, no, and that's exactly what she was thinking. And 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 uh, we assured her that wasn't going to happen. And part of it was the, just the relationship we had. We have always accommodated one, one another rather than, uh, I think, early on in our relationship, we made some efforts to bend the other toward what we wanted. And then we found a a happy medium and and continued onward and uh that was very helpful and you know what i have come to learn is that you know those uh relationships splinter because you judge one another's grief and we just didn't right. do that well it seems to me me you got clear on several things right off the bat as soon as as soon as you as soon as Max died, like, we're not going to judge each other's grief. Everybody does it differently. Right. Um, like, we're not going to hide anything. We're not going to go into shame. Like, we're going to talk about him. We're going to keep him alive with us. We're going to keep those relationships going. Those are all incredibly helpful um, kind of um, companions, I guess, on the road of grief. And I wonder if there are any other things that you feel really helped you to live forward until the point where um, that was more solid in you. Well, one thing that I have come to learn, and really since the publication of the book, is is a, just a little spinoff of of what you just described, is you know, we have a finite number of interactions with Max and, you know, we don't get any more memories with him unless, unless someone brings us one. And one of the ways that talking about Max and keeping him present helps is it really helps if our people who knew Max come to us and tell us stories about him. You know, and one of the reasons, one of the things I say in the book and one of the reasons I wanted to write it is to encourage people 
that it's okay to talk about the deceased with the person who lost them. It's even in a case such as this, where you may worry that there is some shame involved. Uh, you know, the fact is we want to talk about Max. And the fact is, if you bring me an anecdote about Max, that's a real gift that, you know, cause that's a, that's a memory I don't have and I don't get any more with him. So, uh, anybody that has, and, and I have received several really funny or touching ones since he died. And it's, I'm just get so excited when I hear them because it's something I didn't know about him. You know, I would, I would echo that. Um, I would, I would call my wife's death, um, notably non-traumatic, she had cancer. She had it a long time. She was supposed to die a lot sooner. Her body quit, right? right. Uh, it's the least traumatic kind of death, except for the fact that she was young. But even still, 26 years later, uh, if someone talks about her in some kind of present tense way, it's very moving to me. You know, it's, sure. it's um, her impact in the world uh matters to me <laughs> so sure. i i echo what you're what you're saying there and maybe even more particularly for uh, a young person because max was quite a person you know um an impactful sort of person in his um unusual look uh, uh way of looking at the world yes yes uh well we certainly think so and and you know it's uh, just when you think he's fading away, something will happen. And, and, and it's not always, you know, I, I, I say these, hearing these stories are wonderful, but, you know, some of the interactions that we have with Max now are, you know, they're emotionally difficult. Uh, one of his uh, classmates that he went K through 12 with, K through 12 with, got married a couple of weeks ago and, and we went to the wedding. Uh, we were invited to the wedding and it, that was bittersweet. I mean, you know, she was a, she was somebody that Max always liked and, and, and to see that was, you know, sort of, you know, refocused us on the loss, but you know, it's sort of the same. It's a corollary of how, what I talked about my nephew's wedding, you know, what, what were we not going to go, you know, I, and, we were right. happy for the bride and uh, you just, you have a bit of a pit in your stomach, but that's just, that's, that's what our life is. And, and, you, you know, if, you know, I, I feel like, uh, you know, the pluses in that case outweigh the, the, the minuses or at least weigh the same. I'll put it that way. Can coexist, I guess is. That's a better way to put it. I don't want to grade one better than the I other. I think people don't certainly... people don't know that. You know, yeah. both can exist at the same time, at the exact same moment, in the same body. <laughs> you know. Exactly. That's a better way to put it. No question. Time for our second break. We'll come come back to that in a few minutes. And you can go to my website, weatherandgrief.com or the Good Grief Host page to find me. Let me know what you think of the show. Suggest guests, whatever you'd like to do. And to find Ivan Maisel, go to Ivan Maisel, I-V-A-N-M-A-I-S-E-L.com. Back soon. 
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins looks at how natural healing and biological dentistry can safely and effectively treat most health problems. You'll hear about the innovations in both traditional and alternative medicine therapies with doctors and dentists, along with discussions with chiropractors, medical experts, homeopaths, naturopaths, and energetic healers. It's great to have all the best information in one place. And Functional Medicine with Dr. Robbins brings it all together. Listen Thursdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific, on Voice of America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been talking with Ivan Maisel about his book, I Keep Trying to Catch His Eye, and Ivan, I was thinking during the break and was about to actually mention it to you during the break that I always feel especially um, grateful to to have men talk about their grief on the show. As you might imagine, it's less common to have guests who've, who've, you know, written about and talk about their grief. And... It just seems so important that that you are out in the world uh, saying two things. One, we we can grieve, right? We can have those feelings. We're wired for it, right? <laughs> as it is, absolutely. And, and also that there's value and benefit to being in touch with your feelings, um, which of course is a pretty important message for for young people that might be struggling in the way that Max was, yes? 
Absolutely. And, uh, you know, A, as we talked about earlier, I, you know, you, you need to get it out. You know, I think mental illness needs sunlight and, and grief. To me, you cannot hold it in, you know, uh, and it, what we said, what my wife Meg and I said to our daughters is, you know, don't care how you grieve. We care that you grieve. And, you know, you know, we think a grief counselor would be smart. Uh, if that's not what you want to do, then, you know, write a journal, do something, but you control how it comes out of you because it is going to come out of you. And, and if you don't control when it comes out of you, then it will control when it comes out of you. And died in like 10 years. To- <laughs> that may not be convenient to what's going on in the rest of your life. And, and both girls handled it very differently. One went straight to a grief counselor and, and, and the other one eventually went to a grief counselor, but they've, you know, they've, they have worked at it. And, uh, you know, much to their benefit. And I think the same is with any, you know, it doesn't have to be grief with anything you need to tend to your garden. And if something's going wrong, then, you know, you got to do something about it. It also does um, seem to me that you're probably a person who you, you told me you went to therapy earlier in your life. You know, um, if I, if I had to choose one quality, it would, it would be people who are, are uh, self-reflective, willing to learn from their experience, right? And that previous experience probably showed itself in you knowing that right away, because I think some people do not know that right away, that they, they do everything to try to avoid it, right? Well, um, that was me. Yeah, that, that was me before I went to therapy. And it took me a long time of being in therapy to sort of figure out, you know, that uh how to do it you know for lack of a better phrase you know how to use this to uh proactively to benefit myself rather than just go answer the questions i'm asked and uh i I was not you know the greatest uh patient but i but i had a very patient therapist and she's uh you know i still go to see her for you know 10,000 mile checkup, but actually, you know, quicker uh, than that. Music to my ears. Yeah. <laughs> I, I go quicker than that. You know, I would say uh, I, I go a few times a year just to sort of check in and make sure everything's okay. And, and uh, you know, why wouldn't you do that? You know, if, you know, why, if there's somebody out there that you can talk to that will help you, why wouldn't you do that? I'm thinking of this thing I, I have said to me a lot. Oh, you're a grief counselor. Does, Matt, does that mean grief is easier for you? <laughs> <laughs> and so my constant reply is, no easier. I just know I have to do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, I feel you, you maybe help other people with that message. I'm, I'm kind of morphing two chapters of your book together a bit. Um, the chapter about... Uh, the interview you conducted with the Helinskis, who also lost their son. And the very next chapter is A Better Person. 
And I wonder if you could talk a bit before we get out of here about, I mean, obviously n- knowing this territory made you a better person for them, right? Um, yes. Sure. Uh, uh, who else could have interviewed them the way that you could? Exactly. Uh, but, exactly. I, but I wonder, uh, and for people who don't know, their son also took his life and was, was a college football player, yes? Yes, Tyler Helinski was a quarterback at Washington State who ended his life in January of 2018. And ESPN is looking at me like, you know, well, you're going to do something about, you're, you're going to produce some work about this, right? And, and I didn't, what I did not want to do was write the procedural, this is what, how Tyler ended his life because I found that, you know, I found that intrusive, but another writer at another uh, publication, another website did that, did the job and did it very sensitively and, and did a terrific story. And then ESPN came back to me and said, well, you are going to do something right. And I finally said to them, look, you're coming to me. We both know why you're coming to me. If you want me to write a story, I would be willing to write a story about Tyler's parents because that's my experience and what, you know, what they're dealing with. And, uh, and ESPN, God bless them, uh, signed off on that and gave me a, a video crew and, and Mark and Kim Holinsky, Tyler's parents were terrific. We bonded immediately we are still good friends. We still check on one another. Uh, and they have done great work in the space we were talking about earlier of, of providing and encouraging schools to produce mental health resources for student athletes. Uh, so uh, it's uh, all of that, you know, the, that chapter and then the, the next chapter about being a better person. I am a better journalist now uh, because for another number of reasons, one is, as I referred to earlier, the, my own post-traumatic growth, I'm a lot more emotionally sensitive toward my subjects. And the other is I don't care as much about I used to get so emotionally wrapped up in the games because I'm a, I'm a fan as well as being a writer. And I would get so excited. Why would you, why would you have that career if you weren't? Exactly. (laughs) All, you know, although as, as my uh, friend and former colleague, Rick Riley once wrote, you know, the thing about being a sports writer is you have, it's okay to love sports, but you have to love writing because that's the part you're doing. You know, so, uh, and uh, but as I sort of, uh, you know, did not, I mean, living through Max's death and, and, and absorbing it, you know, college football is not as important in my life as it once was. But telling stories about people and is still important. And, and those are the people I know and I still love to cover. And I'm a lot more attuned to what's a good story here, you know, about this person, not just, you know, he's the new coach and, you know, this is how, why, you know, this is what he intends to do. 
in his job. No, I want to know who this guy is. And, uh, and I feel much more like, I feel like I've given myself license and I have the freedom to tell these kind of stories in a way that I wouldn't afforded myself that license before. It's, it's paradoxical. Uh, this post-traumatic growth thing. One thing I like about those guys that that coined the phrase is they're so intent on not um, uh, not thinking the growth is, eliminates the struggle. You know that they're kind of two paths along the same direction. Um, yes. And there's there's a way that in your book it almost seemed very, very uh, lightly, um, that, the, that there was a little hesitation about saying I'm a better person. But of course, oh. it, you got a choice, become a better person, you know, learn and grow, <laughs> or just be stuck with with the trauma. Well, uh, the, the, the first time I said aloud, and I, and I, you know, this, it was not a small hiccup in my life. The first time I said aloud, well, I'm a better person since Max died, I almost got physically ill, Cheryl. I mean, because just, you know, the, you know, the connotation that I had somehow benefited from his death really bothered me. But whether I benefited or not, he was, to your point, whether I benefited or not, He's still gone. Yes. So, you know, it's up to me to what do I do with it? And, uh, and you know, I didn't think, well, I'm going to be a better person now. Uh, and that was not a goal of mine in a sort of a uh, self-improvement sort of way. It's just sort of happened, you know, that I'm more, you know, I'm just more emotionally present and more emotionally aware than I used to be. And I think that's made me a better person. And you're, you're also saying better at your job, which is to interview people in the sports world, basically, yes, probably yes. rarely to interview grieving parents. And yet I can imagine that the people you interview feel your humanity and that that opens them up in some way, or that that's appreciated. I have to think by the people that you do interview for whatever reason you're in the room with them. Well, uh, you know, most, uh, a lot of who I interview are, are college kids and, I'm a lot more open to the fact that they got a lot of issues that they are dealing with and a lot of balls in the air. And, and so I don't, a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure, especially now, mm -hmm. you know, social media just magnifies all of it. Uh, but it's, it, it's a tough job to be a high profile college athlete in America these days. Amen. And, yeah. We're going to have to leave it there for today, but I really appreciate okay. you being with me. Thank you. Thank Ivan. you so much. IvanMazel.com to find the book, which is so beautiful. Go read it. Next week, I'll have Mary Lemia, author of Grief Isn't Something to Get Over. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.